friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll find us under Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today on Conversations with Consequences, we are tackling a big subject, the rise and fall of liberalism. We're going straight to the top with Professor Adrian Vermeule. He's the Ralph S. Tyler Jr. Professor of Constitutional Law at Harvard University. He's written nine books, and his last book is out now called Law and Leviathan, Redeeming the Administrative State. He's given us the very first interview on his book, and also he will share some ever-profound thoughts on the rise of liberalism, also what it's like to be a professor at Harvard in these contentious times, and his conversion story. After that, we'll continue our conversation with Professor Patrick Deneen of the University of Notre Dame, who wrote a very thought-provoking book that is extremely timely given our current state, called Why Liberalism Failed. But first, welcome to the show, Professor Vermeule. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real treat for me to have you on the show. When I first started this radio show, I was asked for a wish list of people that I would like to talk to, and you were actually at the top of my list. That's very kind of you. I, I uh, love your content. So. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. And I know you don't give a lot of interviews. It's a real honor for me to have you on. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm usually quite reluctant, but uh, under, under certain conditions, I will. Well, I put a lot of pressure on you, so here you are. <laughs> <laughs> And plus, you know, I'm a friendly. So, Professor, you are, you've just recently written a book, and I believe it's coming out next week, and it's called Law and Leviathan, Redeeming the Administrative State. Was this project a long time in coming, and what was the inspiration? It has been a long time in coming, in a sense, because my much of my legal career has been devoted to this question of the legitimacy of the administrative state. And the inspiration is partly negative and partly positive. So let me explain that partly negative is there's a set of people who vehemently and fundamentally critique our system of government as it's evolved. And they want, in some sense, to return to what they take to be the original constitution. I am not at all persuaded that they are correct about the orig- what the original constitution says or means. But in any event, putting that point aside, my message to them is that our unwritten constitution has evolved to a place where um, there is now no question, no realistic possibility of returning to some original written constitution. So the question is what to make of where we are now. And my, me- my positive message to them and to uh, fellow Catholics who are suspicious of the administrative state. So I understand why you are, but this thing is not going anywhere. The only question is whether um, it is devoted to the common good or not. And part of my project is, in a sense, to redeem or uh, help to baptize the administrative state, if you like, to help um, devote it to, to ends that Catholics can can applaud. You have a co-author on your book, and that's Cass Sunstein. Um, do yes. you, do you, and uh, Professor Sunstein agree on how the administrative state can be redeemed? I think we have enough of. Uh, uh, meeting of the minds, if you like, that we can write the book together. I greatly respect Cass. Of course, I don't agree with him on many things. I think we have a different conception, perhaps, of in what the common good uh, actually consists. But I think both of us have a sense that the way forward for the administrative state is is to regulate itself according to a type of law and a set of legal principles that do conduce to the general welfare rather than to some uh, libertarian view of simply maximizing the autonomy of individuals or something along those lines. So the title of your book is very significant, I think. 
because you call it law and Leviathan, and you obviously are referencing Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan. Correct me if I get this wrong. So this is a book which proposed that the government should be a social contract in which man, out of his own self-interest always, hands over a good bit of his liberty in exchange for peace and security. And this results eventually in this massive state that he called the Leviathan. And here, correct me again if I'm wrong, that it also results in the philosophy of liberalism in which the legitimacy of all these human relationships, starting with political but not stopping there, are dependent on whether these relationships are freely chosen and not and chosen through a self-interest of, of each individual person. Does, does that sound about right? Yes, I, I think it does. And I'd say that... Um the, the Leviathan is a reference both to Hobbes and to the frequent meme or trope that people call our administrative state a Leviathan. And in both cases, my claim is that this enormous unholy creature can in fact be baptized or redeemed in a certain way. The tradition of liberal political theory that in some ways starts with Hobbes and and even more distinctly with Locke is a profoundly anti-Catholic, in my view, tradition of political theory. And there's no question that the administrative state that's been called into being by the evolution of our institutions can and has been used for purposes that Catholics should find extremely objectionable. The Little Sisters of the Poor being a long-running horror show in this regard. But again, the point is that it's not going anywhere. And what has to happen is that Catholics need to uh, baptize it from within, as it were, and try to recall it to principles of right ordering. So you're a constitutional lawyer, and you bring up the Little Sisters of the Poor. In another recent case in Bostock, the Supreme Court decided that the Constitution protects individual liberty, individual choice, to the extent of an individual deciding against all material facts or even science that he or she can be of the opposite sex. In other words, that the individual is unfettered from all the basic facts of even nature. And also, for instance, in Roe, the court found that individual liberty extends to a woman choosing to end the life of her own child. The court seems to be enshrining a liberal autonomy-based conception of rights into our entire society. Do you agree with that? And what exactly do you propose instead? Absolutely, that's correct. Uh, Just one technical point is that Bostock is actually a statutory case, not a constitutional case. Okay. But it rests on, in my view, on principles that are very similar to the principles that we've seen from the Supreme Court in the constitutional cases you mentioned. It's fundamentally this principle from John Stuart Mill that maximizing the liberty of all subject to the like liberty of others is the goal of sort of constitutional policy, as it were. And I think that's deeply objectionable for all the reasons the church teaches. It doesn't follow, however, that we shouldn't have a conception of rights. So Father Dominic Legg from the um, Thomistic Institute in Washington has a wonderful paper on how we mustn't throw out the baby with the bathwater and think there's no such thing as an idea of, of, of right in the Catholic tradition. It's just it's defined differently. Right is based on use or justice, giving to each person their due. And right is that which allocated to each conduces to the common good of each and of all. And that is the conception of rights that one ought to have. And I think that's very much the conception of rights that infuses the book. That is, we draw upon the idea that there are, in some sense, natural procedural rights to have the government operate in certain ways that make the law intelligible, comprehensible, and just to its subjects. And that is not a liberal conception necessarily in any way. You have an an idea that you're promoting instead of maybe an originalist view of the Constitution. As the Constitution be able to protect us, conservatives feel that the Constitution can completely protect us um, if it's read uh, in a textual originalist way. And and you feel that, that the Constitution can no longer protect us, as you said, as we were starting. But you propose something different, which is common good constitutionalism. Yes. So the larger project of 
of which my participation in this book is just a part. I don't want to speak for my co-author, but my uh, larger project is this idea of common good constitutionalism. I'm working on another book about that right now. And the idea is, in some sense, to revive and adapt and translate the classical legal tradition for our modern conditions. So American law and Anglo-American law generally used to be drawing from a wellspring of classical legal thought that was ultimately stemmed from European Roman and canon law. Um, it was called the use commune. Uh, and we've fallen away from that participation surprisingly recently, just probably around the, the interwar period, the period between World War One and World War II. Uh, and our attempt is to revive this and to see how to understand the Constitution in that regard. Uh, we have, you know, started a blog called Eustidium, and there's another Another good one called Semi Duplex, and there there are a bunch of institutions that we're producing to try to pursue this agenda. The target, or one of the targets, is originalism. So the conservative legal movement, in my view, has become enthralled to this one particular theory, which is actually a liberal theory. It's a positivist theory called originalism. By positivist, I mean it says that the law is just whatever the will of the sovereign is. That is not the classical view. The classical view is that enacted laws like statutes and the Constitution are part of the law understood as the broader domain of justice, but they are not the whole of it. The broader domain of justice includes the natural law, it includes the uh, jus gentium or the international law, and, and ultimately what it tries to do is to order law towards the common good in these upwards hierarchies that bring us to to man's uh, final ends. So that's the type of law that we're trying to reanimate, as it were. What is the common good for Catholics? Ultimately, that is a question for the church, but proximately, it is a question for the just authority of temporal rulers whose mandate and commission is to promote the common good of all, which is also, and I want to emphasize is the common good of each. This is a crucial insight in the Catholic tradition, which is that we shouldn't oppose the common good to our individual good. It is also our good to live in a society that um, is governed by the common good. Now, what is exactly the common good? Well, that's a long conversation. I draw upon an early modern tradition of Catholic political theory called the Ragione di Stato tradition, <laughs> which identifies the goods of peace, justice, abundance, and I think those can be updated to include health, safety, and security as the most immediate temporal goods. And those then yield principles of Catholic social thought, like subsidiarity, um, solidarity between classes, economic classes, and uh, other principles laid out in Quadragesimo on. And are liberals also concerned with the common good? Are they not trying to promote the common good in their own under their own lights, with the law, with the administrative state, with the courts? It is certainly true that they have a conception of the common good. So one of the claims I would want to make, and I think uh, many people want to make in the broader community that's interested in this, is it's impossible for any government to function without a conception of the common good, either expressly or implicitly. Mm -hmm. And any attempt to disclaim that is um, just shows a lack of self-awareness. However, as so often, the uh, liberal conceptions of the common good are a defective or imperfect or incomplete rendition of the church's um, understanding of the common good. So, for example, one liberal account, in one liberal account, the common good degenerates into aggregate utility. This is seen in the Benthamite utilitarian tradition, where we take your utility, my utility, someone else's utility, add them all up, and then try to have social policies that produce the greatest sum of those. And, and that is not the Catholic conception, which, as I said, there's no opposition position between the individual good and, and the aggregate. It's the insight is that um, the good of the whole society is itself our good. And yet at the center of the liberal concept of the common good is personal autonomy. Yes, exactly. So in this Benthamite tradition I was talking about, the idea is that your utility is subjective. If you, as Bentham said, if you find pleasure in some silly game, that's just as good as in the, the greatest poetry that's ever been produced. If you find pleasure in 
some activity that we might think is morally debasing, that no one else has any standing to tell you so unless you're uh, actively inflicting some sort of harm on third parties. So yes, very much the liberal conception is that individuals decide upon their own good. This is the sort of thing that's a little bit tricky because, of course, Catholic social thought recognizes a domain in which it's perfectly legitimate for individuals to decide upon their own good. I mean, if we go get ice cream, the church doesn't tell me mm-hmm. whether I need to order chocolate or vanilla. Or, ro- or romance, right? You get to choose your own spouse exactly. out of romantic exactly. love. Right. But what the church does not do is to make liberty into an idol. It says that liberty actually properly becomes itself when it is liberty to order oneself, one's family, and one's society towards the true good of human nature and of human flourishing. But in the liberal tradition, the idea is that if all the individual actors are promoting their own common, their own good, what they perceive as their own good or their own, what their will asks for, then in the whole society in aggregate, will develop all these side benefits like peace and harmony and prosperity the common good yes and yes, that's that's like a ma- that's like magical man. thinking that seems oh, to me magical i'm sorry that seems to be magical thinking where somehow each person being extremely selfish will result in good for the whole society absolutely uh, well said this is the, the famous invisible hand theory that is most commonly associated with adam smith what people forget is that adam smith Uh, embedded the invisible hand in an explicitly providentialist account of the functioning of society. And in a funny way, that's sort of been lost and sort of hasn't because the modern devotees of the invisible hand theory really are faith-based. That is, they are animated by a deep providentialist faith that their theorems will pan out. All I can say is, I've, I've written elaborately about this elsewhere, there's no mechanism that ensures they will pan out, and there's no real evidence to think that they do pan out. I mean, do we think that in our society, people's flourishing or even subjective happiness is increased as markets have become more and more dominant. I see no evidence of that. Um, Do we think that our free speech markets function well? I mean, to promote rational public discourse, I mean, merely to state that proposition is is I think to see how risible it is. So the invisible hand rests on nothing but a, a misplaced faith. The invisible hand, I think, is rooted in a horror of purpose of rule by a legitimate public authority. It's an attempt to produce all the goods we want in a indirect emergent way without any public authority aiming directly at promoting those goods through law and it's that horror of rule that i think is very close to this heart of the liberal tradition so you mentioned that adam that the invisible hand that is somehow going to develop deliver all these goods for us out of our own selfishness that that is a providentialist um idea and interpretation of what's going on right so that brings me to so you wrote liberalism's characteristic obscurantism is to conceal its own character as political ideology as one of the great world religions So how does it happen that an ideology dedicated to perfect individual freedom also create a religious ambiance? And religion being characterized by norms and customs and, and binding, right? Obediences. Absolutely. A, a great French mind, a man named Louis Vuillot, who ran a ultramontanist, papalist <laughs> journal called L'Univers in the 19th century, really figured this out. And he, uh, in my view, identified this enduring social force, call it liberalism, call it the party of progress, call it what have you, whose creed is a vision, an ultimately uh, quasi-religious vision. It's based on a, a, a theory of salvation in which all men become fully liberated and thereby fully equal. And this creed is very much grips our elites today. Uh, In fact, you can see it played out in uh, various almost expressly religious ceremonies um, that we've seen even in recent months. The kneeling, um, the kneeling. American streets. Like, or the kneeling in Congress of the the Democrats. Yes, exactly. That was very religious. Yes, very good example. So this stuff surrounds us. And and the idea is, the point of these ceremonies is to constantly um, 
overcome some sort of oppression. The sacrament mm-hmm. or liturgy is of the overcoming of oppression. And when there's no oppression to be had, uh, some new op- oppression must be found. And that accounts for the relentless dynamism of this view that it's always needs to identify a new oppressor that it can overcome. So th- so we're just looking th- at that down our horizon. When when we when we finally conquer racism, there'll be something else. Yes, exactly. I mean, we've seen it in in the sexual domain. First we conquer marriage. Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. And, the, and and then the boundaries are constantly ever expanding until uh, well, just in the past few days, the barrier of uh, pedophilia has been breached. Oh, that's right. That's uh, that's been that's been <laughs> that barrier has been pretty porous for a while. I think. Yes, you're you're correct. Yeah, I think you pointed that out on Twitter. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I you know if you take if you take the um, if you take the norms if you take the guardrails out from around sex, there's no natural barrier that exists. I think in the mind of perverted men. <laughs> Why Why should there be? What is there? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, Professor, you have a very interesting life. You're a constitutional scholar, a, conser- a European-style conservative. Yes. At uh, one of the most liberal universities in the world. So I'm, I'm going to quote you back at you again. You say, liberal society celebrates toleration, diversity, and free inquiry, but in practice it features a spreading social, cultural, and ideological conformism. So my own daughter, who recently graduated from Harvard, told me, that that's how it was at Harvard. <laughs> and she oh, felt that very strongly. How do you uh, exist in that environment? And, and how safe are you? That is a tricky set of questions. I would say that uh, because I teach in a professional school and because I teach a relatively technical part of public law, which is administrative law, I do not face as many problems as I've heard colleagues face or uh, colleagues at other um, universities face. But I cannot imagine uh, teaching certain parts of constitutional law or criminal law or um, certain other subjects uh, without facing severe problems. Mm-hmm. But you're able, yeah, the, I guess the administrative state is not, uh, is, is a very technical thing. I can tell from the book. <laughs> I only got through, <laughs> I was only able to read the introduction. <laughs> well, it's funny. It's, 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 it's technical, but it's also opens up to the most profound constitutional issues, partly because if you look at our constitution, there's very little about the administrative state in it. Yet today, 98% of our public employees work in the administrative state in one way or another. And all of us are very bound by the administrative state. We, our lives are, are structured by it. We, are, we, exactly. we encounter it every second of the day, it seems. Exactly. You go out of your house, uh, you're on a road that's been built by some uh, uh, probably state or local agency with federal, uh, with financial contributions from a federal agency. You get in your car with your driver's license that was given to you by an agency and so and it goes from there. I was taking a shower this morning and I looked out the window. There was a drone from the Florida Power and Light <laughs> outside <laughs> my window. What were they checking? I don't know. I was too shocked. Or something? Yeah, I don't know what they were checking, but it was the administrative state was flying a drone outside my shower window. <laughs> That's hilarious. In the future, the drones may be looking for Catholics. Who knows? Uh, that, that doesn't seem so far away. So, Professor, you bring up Catholicism again. You are a famous convert. Do you mind if I ask you about your conversion? No, not at all. was uh, baptized as an Episcopalian, you know, the American version of Anglican. I sometimes have to explain <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I have to explain that. I know not to you, but just some people uh, don't know what that is. So let's see, um, I was baptized in an Episcopalian uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I had a sort of Episcopalian-ish upbringing. I went to an Episcopalian boarding school. And then at a certain point in my life, I was actually on the board of the Harvard Episcopalian chaplaincy. So I was like a lay member on that board. I think I was maybe even slated to be president of that board, or I was president of that board. And through a series of intellectual discoveries and other events, I sort of came to realize I think that Catholicism might actually be true, and I've got a real problem. So there was this long, weird period where I was sneaking into Catholic Mass, sitting in the back, not, of course, (laughs) taking communion, but just absorbing the vibe, as they say. Were you missing the good music and the... 
<laughs> well, at, see, it's funny you say that because at a certain point, one realizes that the beautiful Episcopalian Anglican liturgy can in fact become a, a, a kind of illusion that prevents people from seeing mm-hmm into the truth there can be a seduction that prevents people from doing what they need to do to find the truth um so that's that's actually a very interesting side conversation to have anyway so uh then by the help of several uh uh priests who i had met um i decided that i could no longer avoid this this truth uh, and that I really had to choose. It's the sense of having to choose that John Henry Newman. I was going to say your your story yeah. sounds to me like John Henry Newman's very much um, an intellectual encounter with the truth. Yes, and then the heart. Um, I'm sure. I also had a, a deeply personal encounter with the Blessed Virgin, which uh, I will talk about sometime. But um, so it wasn't strictly intellectual, but it was partly intellectual. Anyway, so at this point, I, I found that I could no longer avoid this, and I uh, had to go tell my fellow board members that of the Episcopal chaplaincy that I was becoming Catholic, and that resulted in several extremely <laughs> awkward <laughs> conversations. Um, at least you didn't have and, to leave your university, as John Henry Newman did. <laughs> right. In that sense, uh, things are better. Yes. Um, I agree. But that's... Uh, the England of the uh, anti-Catholic uh, legislation era is a pretty low bar. <laughs> we will soon. We'll be thinking that that's that's uh, a paradise. <laughs> exactly. We'll be look. We'll be hoping we were living then, Professor. Um, our time is up, but I oh. I I want to thank you very much for for doing this for conversations for me. Um, it was really wonderful to speak to you and I'm going to try to plow through the rest of the book I have no legal background (laughs) please don't inflict that on yourself (laughs) there's no need it's really unnecessary where can our uh, listeners uh, you've written other books where can our listeners find um, your books and and what would oh and I know that you're you're very present you you wrote a wonderful um, article in the Atlantic You've been in First Things recently. Uh, they're all the books are all on Amazon. Have an op-ed in the New York Times coming out on Tuesday to explain this book. Oh, in, great! In accessible terms, so <laughs> it should be uh, there. Should be plenty of media presence. Well, thank you very much, Professor. And uh, maybe you'll have maybe you'll join us again one day. It would be a great pleasure. Thank you so much. It's very kind of you to have me. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We'll continue our conversation with Professor Patrick Deneen of the University of Notre Dame, who wrote a very thought-provoking book that is extremely timely given our current state of insanity called Why Liberalism Failed. So, Professor Deneen, I recently read your wonderful book, Why Liberalism Failed. So, you wrote this way back in 2018, it seems like forever, because 2020 has lasted about six years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it does seem like a long time ago now. And I ordered it because I thought that with the absolute insanity that's going on right now of the riots, and I feel like the impending election is going to be another bout of insanity, we are in a point where it, it, it might be good to ask the question very seriously of your book, Why Liberalism Failed. Do you think that your book is especially pertinent right now in our history? Yeah, that's it's a good question. I wrote it um, not not anticipating any particular political event. This was really the ideas that are in the book germinated over, I would say, at least ten years before its publication. So it was really, you know, the main arguments were conceived long before Donald Trump or Brexit or the the current troubles. And yet, uh, maybe in part because these were things I were was reflecting on that weren't you know, immediately connected to political events. Maybe maybe it sort of, maybe someone like Alexis de Tocqueville, not to flatter myself, but it allows some, it allows a more philosophic reflection on our moment that maybe can see a little bit deeper and a little bit further. Well, it's a very needed one. And what I really liked about your book is that it goes to basics and it explains, which for me was very important because I, I have to admit almost complete absence of philosophical training. What is the philosophy of liberalism? 
Sure. Well, you know, I think that it, assuming that it's a, it's largely a Catholic audience that's listening to this, yes. uh, you know, I think I think there's a way of really elucidating this that that should be fairly obvious to, to most of your listeners. If we read if we read scripture, if we read particularly the uses of the language of freedom that we encounter in in scripture, we encounter an understanding of of liberty uh, that um, was operative for you know certainly much much of the classical and Christian period, which is freedom is the condition that we achieve when we achieve a kind of governance over the, the sinful part of our nature or what the what the ancients would have called the the vicious parts of our nature the parts associated with vice and we achieve a kind we achieve a kind of freedom when we overcome or discipline that lower part of our nature particularly through the practice of virtue and so when when Saint Paul for example says you know Christ Christ came to set us free what he really means, of course, is that it was through the imitation of Christ that we achieve a kind of freedom, uh, overcoming, uh, again, the, the the more sinful side of our nature. And, he, and, and in the sense, what Paul argues quite explicitly is that when we are acting um, in, in, in a kind of, by the command of the sinful part of our nature, then we're in a condition of servitude or slavery, mm-hmm. he, he makes the argument. So it's a very different understanding of liberty than the operative one that we have today, where freedom is the freedom, liberty is, is the ability and the condition of being able to do what I want. The freedom to be able to act on whatever impulse or urge or, um, or thought or idea uh, that I prefer, that I will, as long as I don't harm someone else in the in the uh, in in the pursuit of that idea of liberty, and it's really the transition of those two ideas of liberty that we see the abandonment and even the rejection of the classical and Christian idea of freedom, and the embrace of an idea of liberty that serves and is at the basis of the idea of liberal uh, of the political order and more broadly the social order of liberalism. But then our country, who that we love, that we admire, that we think is the exceptional country of the world now and maybe in all time is a country based on on liberalism it's it's an expression of that philosophy no it's it's true I'm now now there's certainly there are currents in the american order and i talk about some of these in my book and they were there at the time of the founding that stress this idea of freedom, this this more modern idea of freedom of liberalism, but it was it was bound in by a, a kind of we could say a, the inheritance of a long tradition mm-hmm. uh, that you know was really the inheritance of Christianity, especially in the United States. For as long, and so I think as long as America was you know dominantly a Christian nation and understand understood itself in those ways, this idea or ideal of modern freedom was more or less constrained in 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 practice. Practice, even if theory, even if in theory it, it was unbounded, and so it's it's become the case in more recent years that this theory of freedom has become realized in much of our modern world. And I think that some of the deepest debates today, I think I think really can be reduced to a kind of debate over what's the proper nature and understanding of freedom, what's the proper understanding of liberty, and you have sort of two sides contesting over whether or not liberty is in some ways a, a political, social, economic, educational order that's oriented toward virtue and toward the attainment and practice of virtue, or whether it's oriented toward the liberation of individuals from any perceived arbitrary limitation on our ability to pursue and to act in in, in accordance with what we wish. So after the founding United States and as, as, as the project of liberalism grew and grew and, and became more itself, liberalism started to chip away at the very things that allowed it to succeed. There are the very things that allowed it to deliver the things that it had promised, like a healthy pluralism and personal liberty and equality. Is that true? I think that's, that's in a nutshell, certainly the thesis of my book and the argument that I would make about where we find ourselves today. To put the thesis of my book in a nutshell, it's that liberalism failed because liberalism succeeded. Mm-hmm. When, when in some ways it ceased to be in some ways constrained by this older understanding of freedom and limited by that older understanding of freedom, it kind of became itself, as you put it. And as a result, uh, what we see today is a kind of, I mean, it's a, it's a in some ways a contradiction to, of, among other things, the healthy pluralism that, that you mentioned, right? So one, one aspect of this older idea of liberty is that you need, in order to attain a condition of, uh, of, of self-governance and a kind of self-discipline, and to be able to develop the practices and habits of virtue, 
you need these uh, you, you need these in some ways institutions or forms in our society. You might call it a kind of lumpy society. Of course, you need the family. You need a strong family mm-hmm. to to raise a virtuous child into a into a virtuous adult. The kind of habits that you hope to instill in your children that then become a part of their character, and that when they become old enough, they can reflect on those and embrace those aspects of their character, not now out of merely habit, but also out of choice and out of, out of will. You can see this throughout a kind of healthy society. You need an explosion of these kinds of institutions, of the schools, of the communities, of the neighborhoods, of the churches, of the of the associations and organizations. All of the things that go into shaping the kind of human being that's envisioned by this classical Christian understanding of liberty. But if your operative understanding of liberty is that we need to reduce the influence of those institutions that limit our free choice as individuals, mm-hmm. our ability to do what we want as individuals, then you're going to come to see increasingly both a social and even state-backed effort to decrease the strength, position, and influence of those institutions that, of course, have had powerful impact on a whole range of institutions that, that we could point to across across the nation, including, of course, the churches, the, the kinds of voluntary associations we might think of, and now is directly sort of bearing in on that most primary and essential and elemental institution, the family, where we see so many of our battles, political battles taking place today. And so as, as liberalism chips away at these institutions, which are the ones that civilize our populace and, and our voters, right? What is needed is a big state, a powerful state to keep the peace, right? Amongst people who no longer have the virtuous habits of getting along with their neighbor and and, get, and taking care of their family, for instance. That's right. So, you know, it, it becomes mutually reinforcing dynamic, um, Uh, that the early liberalism conceives of human beings as naturally, radically individual selves. I mean, mm-hmm. we can go back to, you know, go back to your high school or college classes talking about the state of nature. That in the state of nature, what we think of as human beings is not as creatures who are born into families, you know, embedded in traditions, parts and members of a community, carriers of stories and practices and cultures, which I think would be the way that most of humanity thought of what human beings were uh, for much of human history. Rather, what liberalism really does is, is create a kind of philosophical revolution in theory that that changes who we think we are, in fact, in the world. So it conceives of human beings as radically individuated selves. You know, think of sort of the state of nature in which we are basically, you know, we seek to get what we want for ourselves at the a cost or expense of what you might want which brings us into conflict and therefore radically individuated selves can only turn to the power of the state to organize us to keep us from killing each other uh, and rely upon basically the power of the state uh, to establish the boundaries to act as the referee uh, to keep us from from killing each other and that's, that's the theory that leads to the the creation of the modern liberal state but in point of fact human beings aren't this kind of creature you know we are born into families and we are born into communities and we are generally or at least until recently have been born into religious traditions and so in order to make us into those kind of human beings that liberalism claims that we are these radically individuated selves we actually need the power of the state to grow to expand to take over more and more of mm-hmm. the activities that might once have been assumed by local communities by churches by of course by families and the consequence is that on the one hand the The more we become individualized, the more we need the state to control us, to uh, to order us. But the more we want to become individuals, the more we rely upon the state to make that theory into reality. So there's a kind of a, a, a mutually reinforcing cycle that contradicts, you know, a lot of assumptions about uh, about American politics for the last 50 years. I mean, if you think about it, we had two political parties, one of which argued that the real source of, of sort of human good uh, was was the state uh, that needed to restore individualism. This was the Democratic Party. And you had the Republican Party that argued, no, the real way to limit the power of the state was to promote individual liberty. But by my telling, in fact, what happens is both individualism and statism grow together. And, and I think if you look at the evidence, you really see that's actually what has been happening in our world today. We are at once more alone, more separate, 
less likely to be members of some larger web of relationships, but we're also subject to an increasing uh, enlarged, engorged, and uh, sort of world-straddling state uh, that increasingly seeks to uh, uh, control or to know every aspect of our lives. So we are, you know, by liberal theory, we're radically free and also in some ways radically uh, in this kind of tight statist web. You know, it seems like the worst of both worlds, right? A strong, uh, impersonal, unloving government uh, interested in keeping the peace and, and enforcing certain norms. And then the lack of all these uh, human relationships and connections, which are the ones that keep us flourishing as human beings. Well, when I, you know, I've taught now for about 25 years at um, some really remarkable, prestigious, uh, and uh, quite wonderful universities in there in, in certain respects, uh, Princeton, Georgetown, and now Notre Dame. And, and I can honestly say that over this 25 years, I, th I think it's genuinely palpable, the level of anxiety, unhappiness, uh, um, uh, just general dis-ease, if I can mm -hmm. use that word in the age of COVID, a dis-ease uh, with the condition of growing into a world in which you are expected entirely to make it on your own. This mm -hmm. is one of the things that students at these kinds of institutions are told, you have to make it on your own. Uh, and yet, um, uh, you know, kind of at the same time, a, a cognition at least, uh, that this is an impossibility, that this is not what the human condition should be. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, a deep connection to often and reliance and gratitude upon their families, but also this, this sense that they have to enter the world almost as these kinds of human beings in the state of nature and kind of create their own existence out of the, the work of their own hands. And so I, I do think it is, it is a, in some senses, the worst of both worlds that we're seeing, especially manifest in a lot of the measures of unhappiness uh, that we see broadly in our society today. You know, things, uh, opioid addictions and suicides and, and just the general, I think, unhappiness, especially of a, of a younger generation that's been given a very, the absence of a kind of inheritance. One of the things that you explain in your book, and, I, and it fits in with this, is you explain that liberalism is at war against nature itself. And, and I do find that young people especially, there's a lot of unhappiness because they've been told that through liber liberalism has taught them that they are, they are even untethered to nature, to the natural order, and even, even the essences of human nature. So one of the things we could, to begin to really differentiate what we're talking about, and I've talked about this in terms of Democratic and Republican parties, there, there were really two waves of liberalism and two forms of liberalism, and, and I speak of them as two sides of the same coin. So when we think of classical liberalism, the liberalism perhaps of the founding fathers, we think of the liberalism of the, again, the state of nature theory, of human beings you know, struggling to eke out uh, a kind of existence in a hostile world. And it's out of this it's out of this milieu, this philosophic milieu, that you began to encounter arguments that nature is our enemy. Mm. It's a it's a force that opposes us. And in order for us to e exist in the world in the way in which we want to exist, to, to enjoy the freedom we wish to exist, we have to dominate or master nature. Mm. And so the language of Francis Bacon, the language of Rene Descartes, it's echoed by Benjamin Franklin, for example, that the natural world is seen as a kind of opponent, as a kind of um, uh, you know, something that we need to subject to our dominion. And and I think many of the consequences, of course, of this worldview we're seeing, uh, you know, in evidence today uh, that, uh, you know, the crisis of, of our environment, of depleted resources, uh, climate change, and so forth, uh, is a direct consequence of this, of this theory. The second wave of liberalism, what we often talk about as progressivism, we see a much more a kind of interesting embrace of the idea of coexisting with the natural world, but a deep hostility to human nature, and in particular, human sexuality, right? That human sexuality is this, in the same way that for classical liberals, the natural world is something we have to conquer. For progressives, the human body itself is something that mm -hmm. we have to conquer, right? And so, especially any aspect of our body that prevents us from being free in a completely autonomous way has to be subject, especially to technological control, birth control, abortion, uh, increasingly, you know, transgender uh, operations and so forth. And so, again, it's, it's striking that it's flip side of the same coin. But in the end, in a liberal society, you're going to have a crisis both because of this view toward the natural world and the view toward human nature. So we shouldn't be surprised at the same time we're experiencing this crisis 
crisis of our, our environmental world, we're also experiencing a crisis of the family, the decline of reproduction, the decline of birth rates, the the eschewal of families uh, by by young people, uh, the de, you know the denial of our of our nature as human beings, and again we're sort of forced to choose sides in a liberal world. Do you favor uh, opposition to the natural world, to nature itself, or do you favor opposition to the human body? That's a false choice, and mm-hmm. a Catholic of sense knows that this is a false choice. And I think this is one of the things that Pope Benedict, Pope John Paul II, and of course Pope Francis have been so articulate in ways that simply modern liberalism can't put together. But I think if you read the various encyclicals that address these crises of, of the way in which we view both the natural world and the human and human nature itself, we see a very different path out of this liberal impasse. You mentioned the liberal impasse, and we only have a couple minutes left, and I don't want to finish without asking you what you what do you think is is the solution for our our failed liberalism? What what is forward? What what can we look forward to or hope for as Americans, but also specifically as Catholics after liberalism? Well, I mean, it's our it should be obvious at this point that we need we don't want to we don't want to reject the idea of freedom. This is not a you know many people who read me say, well, obviously you must hate liberty. <laughs> of course, of course I don't. What we really need is to recover and restate for our time that. Catholic, Christian, and classical understanding of what liberty is. It's really as simple as that. Now, you can't simply just go back and just say, here, read this work by Aristotle, or read this work by Aquinas. We need to restate it for our time. What would it mean to live in a world and to shape and create a world that pursued this alternative and I think more noble and better and truer understanding of liberty? And it would force us, among other things, to revisit some very obvious things. What is the family and what is the family for? What is the the nature of the human community? How do we think of ourselves as humans who are responsible both to bearing into the present an inheritance from the past and passing along that inheritance to the future? I mean, think about what we're doing as a civilization. We're not giving our children an inheritance. We're giving them the opposite. We're giving them debt. We're giving them a negative balance mm-hmm. uh, as, uh, as, as a start to their adult lives. And I, and I think when we begin thinking about how do, we, how do we interact with the natural world, how do we interact with the fact of human nature, how do we think about education and the purpose and end of education? You know, is it simply to acquire job skills or is it to develop the kind of character that will make us a kind of person who will work well, Mm -hmm. uh, who will do good work as opposed to simply just making money? I think when we really get down to the root of a lot of the contemporary crises, it really does have to go all the way back to this redefinition of liberty, I think a false definition. And we as Catholics have these incredible resources, right? We have the the answer and we just need to proclaim it. Uh, We need to proclaim it in terms that can be understood, can be embraced. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, especially when I speak to young people on college campuses, they get it immediately. They understand what, in many ways, they've been, they've been given or not given, as the case may be. And I think there's a, very, there's, there's a great deal of receptivity that we should, we should understand that as Catholics we can offer to the world today. Well, it's a wonderful project that you proposed to us, Professor Deneen. And I would suggest to our listeners that they start with your book, Why Liberalism Failed. And thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations with Consequences. Thanks so much for having me. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when Jesus will show us how he is calling all of us to help him take in a harvest of men, women, boys, and girls. He does so by means of a parable in which a foreman goes out to summon laborers for his vineyard at dawn, mid-morning, noon, mid-afternoon, and an hour before shutting time. Then the owner of the vineyard gives them all the same full day's pay. The frame for what God wished to teach us is summed up by the prophet Isaiah, who will speak to us in Sunday's first reading. Through him, God tells us, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. Each of us can see the validity of this truth by the typical reaction we have to to Jesus' parable. Without the prodding of any labor union, we agree with the beef of those who worked a grueling 12-hour day but who didn't receive a penny more than those who worked only one hour. 
In order to have our thoughts become more like God's thoughts and our ways resemble his ways, however, we must first understand the context of the parable, get to the root of why on various levels it offends us, and then examine what it's teaching us about God, ourselves, and the kingdom he wants us to enter and help him build. When we compare the men who worked 12 hours with those who worked for one, we think that the latter group had it better, especially since they all received the same pay. But this manifests our jaundiced view of human work, in which we don't regard it as a blessing, but rather as a necessary evil. Work is part of our vocation given to us before the fall, as a means God has given us to live in his image and to grow. As we do honest work, we not only make something, but we make ourselves. We build our character through the quality we bring to our work. Moreover, if we understand the way work happened in the ancient world, we see that work was really a blessing. Men used to go to the marketplace in the morning begging to be hired as day laborers. They did all they could to be chosen, arriving with all their tools, running up to meet those who were hiring, selling themselves as hard workers, much as men in our country did during the Great Depression. They and their families were living on the semi-starvation line. Those hired at five in the afternoon would have easily traded in 11 hours of work in the field for the 11 hours of gut-wrenching anxiety waiting in the square. These considerations bring us to the first application of the parable. Jesus is using it to preach to the Jews about salvation. By the time of Jesus, the Jews had already been God's chosen people since the age of Abraham, about 18 year, 1,800 years before, and they'd received the covenant 1,300 years before through Moses. All of a sudden, a carpenter from Nazareth, who was working all types of miraculous signs to back up the authority of his potent preaching, was saying that others, Gentiles, even converted tax collectors and prostitutes were going to get the same life's wage, the full pay of salvation that the Jews were. Even though the Jews too could be saved, it just didn't seem fair to them. After all, weren't those who had kept the Mosaic law with such exactitude and rigor for centuries entitled to something special? The Lord's generosity in freely offering salvation to others, like he would to the good thief on the cross, was making them jealous. But they were flawed in looking at the, their covenant with God as a burden rather than a gift. The expression the master in the parable says today, are you envious because I'm generous, is a loose translation of the Greek St. Matthew employs, which says, is your eye evil because I'm good? The generosity of God can make us angry because we think that if we're to win, others must be left behind, that we can't be happy and enjoy the fruits of our work unless others, those who haven't made the same choices we have, are unhappy. The first lesson that the Lord wants us to take from this parable is that he calls us to call others into his vineyard to join those whom he called earlier. If we hope our thoughts to become more like his thoughts, our ways to become like his way, for us to look with good eyes rather than evil, then we must rejoice when others are hired for the work of the kingdom. We must strive to work with Jesus as well to let everyone know that there are still many job openings in the fields. But there's a second lesson to the parable. When those of us who are cradle Catholics hear it, we initially seem to relate with those hired at 6 a.m. in the story because we think we've been in the vineyard from the day of our baptism. But the Lord wants us to recognize that it's more likely that many of us are still in the marketplace. We really haven't begun to work. We may regularly visit the vineyard, but we haven't yet rolled up our sleeves as laborers working up a serious sweat and bringing in the Lord's harvest. In the parable, we see how the master representing God exhausts himself, even in comparison to the workers who are hired first thing in the morning. He goes out at 6 a.m., 9, 12, 3 p.m., and 5 p.m. He was willing even to lose money to hire people at the end of the day, not only because he cared about the harvest, which represents, of course, the ever-urgent harvest of souls, but because he didn't want anyone excluded from the work of and in his kingdom. His going out at 5 p.m. shows his passion that everyone come to his vineyard to work. After all, he had already come out four times that day to hire everyone who was there. God is calling us to work because that's the way we'll grow as disciples and begin to look at things from his perspective. Jesus is looking each of us straight in the eye and saying, You're hired. You two go to work in my vineyard. If we respond to the blessing of that calling, if we roll up our sleeves and help him spread and strengthen the faith, then he will give us not just a denarius or a full day's wage, but the abounding generous reward of an eternal life. There's so much work to do, and out of love for others and for us, God is choosing and sending us to do it. 
and strengthening us by giving us his body and blood at mass, not just for stamina for the work, but as a down payment of the wage he wishes to give us forever. Let's get started at that work. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 